So I'm currently taking a, um, a class to learn some poly, which is the, I use those terms sometimes in my talks, but I don't really know the grammar of the language very well. So I'm trying to learn that. And we actually have homework. It's like these little drills in learning, you know, the cases of nouns and verbs and so forth. Sentences and sentences to translate from Pali into English. There are things like, um, the king's son, together with ministers, asks questions of the Buddha. <laughs> or, a little bit less inspirationally, lions kill deer. <laughs> so, um, but it's actually good practice, I have to say, is, you know, in the end, that's what I need in order to learn. Pali is a classical language. It's like Latin. It just has, it's not, it's a dead language, <laughs> first of all. But it has these, um, you know, this structure that's similar to that. And so it brings back, back memories of doing drills in school many, many years ago. Um, sort of when I still had to do drills long after I had mastered whatever I was supposed to have learned. There's still the drills. So anyway, um, but all that's sort of the mind adding extra things. So all this drilling and learning and repetitive uh, remembering uh, gives occasion to observe the mind also. And it is really effective. Also, on this same theme, I was just on a self-retreat uh, ending a couple of days ago. And I was given a, a gardening task as my work meditation. And there was a flowering plant that had a bunch of stalks that were, they're called deadheads, you know, when the flower's gone, but the stalk is still there. And I was supposed to um, remove all of these. And that involves reaching back. You can't just cut off the top. You have to reach all the way back to where that stem came out from the main stem. and Trim that off. That's the best way to do it. And there were literally, I didn't count them all, but there were literally over a thousand of these things in a big patch of flowers. And so I started off with my, you know, 45 minutes a day after breakfast. And it was, it was fine. But I realized I wasn't making a very big dent <laughs> and it wasn't going to uh, look very, uh, if, look very done, shall we say, after the time of my retreat. So I added a second work period after supper to make sure that I was doing more. And I was watching my mind, you know, balancing out, well, you know, where's the edge between really wanting to do this service and, you know, make this area look more beautiful for other people, um, but not getting caught up in uh, perfectionism and needing to get things done. So, repetition has a lot of value in various ways. So what does this say, you know, what is this pointing toward in our practice? Both of these cases in, involve making steady effort in a repetitive task. Now in both of those cases I described there is some kind of goal and some kind of markers of progress. I don't know that we even get that in our meditation practice, and yet we're asked to sit and again and again, just bring the mind back to an object or back to the present moment. Um, so how do we approach tasks like this? 
I also, um, I've asked several groups of students in centers like this, um, so Insight students, if your teacher told you to bow 108 times before every time you sat down to meditate, would you do it? And you can think about that. <laughs> and I often get um, a little bit awkward silence at that as people think about it, because um, there's usually some sense, acknowledged or not, of, of unwillingness to want to bow 108 times before every sitting, and then sort of complex feelings regarding to what degree we're willing to follow an instruction from a teacher. Do I just follow it, or do I get some say in that? Does the teacher have to tell me why, etc.? So we can watch our mind on this. Um, I think at least some of the ambiguity there comes from a sense of not feeling that there's a point to bowing 108 times before sitting. It might be interesting to know that this is actually an instruction in Korean Zen. They do that. Um, and in the Tibetan tradition, of course, there's the 108,000 prostrations that one's supposed to do before starting getting the real instructions. That's supposed to be the first preparatory practice, as it's called, or groundwork. So, all of this is not to belabor a point too much, but maybe to provide some background for the statement that repetition as a mode of development is not so popular these days. We're more into quick results, even instant gratification in some ways, and that's doable sometimes on our cell phone, but then we maybe unwittingly carry that idea sometimes into our practice. So we expect a quick result, or it could be not quite that blunt, but that we seek novelty. You know, I want to do something different. I want to do something interesting. I don't want to just do the same thing again and again. Something fresh or new is superior somehow to just doing breath meditation for 10 years. Well, we want to know why we're doing things or be giving clear indications. When am I going to get to a certain marker of progress? How will I know that I got to a certain point? So there's, that's not to say this is always wrong and that we should just grind away or do whatever the teacher says. That's not what I'm arguing. I'm just, I want to bring out, though, that sometimes our attitudes like this um, can miss crucial opportunities for development, actually, and for insight. There was a several-year period in my life where I was living in a, a different place, and it happened that I was working from home a lot, and so I would, to take a break, I would go walk around my neighborhood. And I wasn't very creative. I actually did the same walk, uh, always the same route, just because it was easy. Um, and it was for several several years, so I must have walked that route, and I did it a few times a week, so I must have walked that route hundreds of times, many hundreds of times. And there, um, there was a day where I was doing the same walk, same way, 
And I suddenly became aware of all the microclimates along that route. Microclimates are changes in pressure and temperature over distances of tens or hundreds of yards. And you can feel them. Um, I mean, it's sort of obvious maybe if you're at the ocean and there's a strong breeze and then you walk in a few blocks and there isn't. But I'm talking about, you know, just relatively within a neighborhood, there were places that were hotter, colder, felt different in terms of the pressure. And one day that all became vividly clear suddenly in my perception, which was very interesting because my understanding of it is that I had been registering these at some level that wasn't conscious all those times. And it took all that time to kind of organize that data that was coming in into this clear perception that rose up into my awareness. So after that, I could always feel the microclimates. That was now part of my awareness of that walk. I can also say on reflection that if I had walked all that time with the intention or the purpose of discerning the microclimates, it would have been different, right? That would have been a different result. It was very different than when it arose as an insight. Not that one's superior necessarily, but just to notice. So in a similar way, if we do the same thing in our practice, again and again and again on the cushion, I think our mind slowly attunes, and this builds up towards having insights that might not arise if we sought novelty, doing something different every time, or we got bored after a week and said, well, I've done enough of this, let's go on. Meditation instructions are actually designed to be fruitful. I mean, they are, they're not pointless. They are designed to bring about a result. We don't know when, and <laughs> we don't always know exactly what the result will be. But at least in my experience, um, they are designed to be fruitful. And if we keep, if you keep observing in this way, if you keep practicing in this way, something good will happen. A change in wisdom or compassion or love. Something's going to come about. Clear seeing. So we can interfere with this if we dismiss repetition as boring or pointless. And we can also interfere with it if we constantly check whether or not our practice is working. Is it working yet? Have I had a result yet? Has it changed enough yet? So there's a balance. You know, there's, a, there's a balance. I think it's also important, though, not to prejudge what that result will be, necessarily. So we have to remain kind of humble and open about what the specific fruit will be. For example, practicing metta, practicing loving kindness or goodwill, will lead to a more loving heart in the long run. That's been tested over you know, thousands of years, so we're, that, that is the result of that kind of practice. But how that will manifest for you is unknown, I think. Uh, there are people who um, become very soft and just beacons of 
love and warmth and we might we sometimes imagine that that's what the result of the practice will be but there are also people whose meditation masters whose love is shown through um, fierceness not in an angry way but in a way that will wake wake people up and they realize later what a gift that was and how much love there was that this person had to show them what they didn't see I felt that about some people. And you can tell if it's coming from really deep love or if it's coming from harshness or anger in some way. Or sometimes we'll undertake metta practice with the idea that it's going to solve a particular problem we have in our life in a particular way. You know, oh, this is going to fix that relationship in a certain way. And it it probably fixed the situation, quote-unquote, but I think we don't know how. (laughs) We don't know how. We might be surprised. So if we we really want it to unfold in a certain way, it's it's an attempt to control the practice. And um, it doesn't always work that way. It will create a tension at some point if we're trying to do too much control. I can also speak to breath meditation, which I've done for a long time. And I could say that it goes very deep, even though it's the, one of the very first practices offered to new meditators. Uh, but if observing the breath carefully, we penetrate to deeper and deeper understanding of not only the body, but also the mind, the very processes of the mind. So repetition, quote-unquote, of Going back to the breath, the breath is never the same. It's never the same, and it keeps unfolding. So it hardly seems like repetition, actually. Maybe I shouldn't have included that. <laughs> but it is kind of the same instruction of going back to that experience of breathing. Sometimes the fruit sneaks in uh, peripherally in some way. So doing those 108,000 bows... Not every teacher assigns 108,000, by the way. But um, if you do a lot of prostrations at the beginning of Tibetan practice, um, I don't think that's meant to be a personal challenge, like only the people who can get through that many prostrations are good enough to walk this path. I don't think that's the intention. I also don't think it's meant to be proof of one's devotion, which sometimes people think it is. I don't think it's any, maybe it is, maybe it could be those things, but um, I know somebody who did that practice completely, and they they thought it was so valuable, they did it again. And for him, uh, he said what he found, the result of this was, is that he became very, very deeply connected to his reason for practicing. So prostrating again and again and again, he really touched why he wanted to practice in a way that can never be shaken from him. So that was, I don't think he expected that to be the result. Or um, my teacher who started in the Zen tradition, there's a tradition there of of a practice called Tangario, where what it it originally meant was that you sat outside the monastery gates when you wanted to come and ordain or practice with an abbot at a Zen monastery, you would come and knock on the gate and declare your intention, and they would say, okay, sit. And you had to sit there until the abbot decided it had been long enough and would come and open the gate and let you in. 
And so, you know, it could be two days, could be 20 days. You don't know how long you have to sit there. And there's kind of a modified Western version of this <laughs> at, at the Zen centers here. They do, do Tangario. And so my teacher went through that. Actually, I think he might have done it in Japan. So there it might have been the real thing. And when he was finally told that he could, so he had to sit and sit. Of course, it's very painful. And when he was finally told that he could come in, he, he was surprised that he started crying. And he realized that by having that session end, and he was going to have to go and now be a monk and do all that stuff, he, realized, he felt like he was never going to be as intimate with himself again as he was during that period of just sitting and waiting and just having that intention. Now, of course, that wasn't true. He, he did find intimate connection with himself again, but it was an interesting result. He probably didn't expect that when he sat down to do Don Barrio. And maybe kind of the ultimate version of this is that practicing the Eightfold Path in whatever form it's taking for you, um, you know, is said to lead to complete awakening. And we don't know what that's going to be. <laughs> so who knows? Who knows what the fruit's going to look like? Certainly not what we think. I think what we, you know, what we can know is that steady effort does produce fruit in some way, produces something, sometimes step by step, you know, in the line with little markers of progress, we get these <coughs> tastes and say, oh, okay, this feels like it's going in the right direction. And sometimes it's like the other way around, you know, there's, we do a little bit of effort and there's some huge change and then it's a long time to integrate that and understand what happened. Um, Sung San, who was a teacher from Korea, said it was um, sudden awakening, gradual development. It was the progress of the path. So you, you wake up and then you have to figure out what that means and that's the long part of practice. Sometimes it works like that. So what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that there's a place in practice for just letting go into a process, you know, just doing it until it bears fruit, whatever that's going to be. Um, and this is a practice that, um, you know, this way of practicing, of just giving oneself to a repeated effort, is actually based in faith. It's based in some kind of faith or trust that things will unfold. I don't think um, it's the only way, or that it's the one true way, or even that it's right for everybody, but that kind of practice is a component, I think, of a healthy long-term practice, having some sense of just letting it unfold. There's a... um, there was a, it's not exactly a vow, but uh, I try to think of things that I need to, I try to observe things that I need to uh, let go of along the path. And sometimes I'll make a, an intention or a resolve to let go of certain things. And 
you know, then I have to just let that bear out and see how it comes. But one of them I found a need for at one point was to say, I renounce knowing how my path will unfold. And that was something important for me to sit with and open to. And I think probably I still need that one. <laughs> but it was a good realization that there was a little part of me that was, you know, some that was the part that's like tracking and seeing, is this, how's this, how's that? Um, and it's not that you never do that, but uh, don't want to get attached to that either. My father um, was originally a practitioner of transcendental meditation, and still is, I think. Although he also does, he also does vipassana now. He's gotten kind of turned on to that in the last few years. But you know, he started in the late '60s, so that's like almost 50 years of sitting down with his mantra. And it's not the same thing. He's it's unfolded over time, and but still, uh, I wonder, you know, could uh, could any of us follow the same instruction? for 50 years, every day. Um, I think it's good. Probably we could stand to lean a little more in that direction than the, the direction we're in, in that we have so many practices available and so many teachers and so many interesting things to do and go to and read and explore. Um, maybe part of the inspiration for this talk is to remind us, that it's a long process unfolding, and uh, we can disrupt it a little bit by doing too much of this and that. So you can just offer for your reflection to think about which parts of your practice do you just do again and again, and which parts is there a little creativity, a little vitality, how's the balance on that, could it be more of one or more of the other? How do you feel about that? How do you feel about just letting things unfold and not really knowing how it's going to be or how long it's going to take? sometimes inspirational to read um, some of the enlightenment poems of the monks and nuns that were with the Buddha. Those were preserved in part of the, you know, the ancient teachings that we have. And they often, I mean, these were people who had, they were monks and nuns. They had taken robes and dedicated their lives. And um, it was a simpler time, so they didn't have their cell phones and distractions and all of that. Um, and some of them write about a, sort of a drawn-out process, you know. Uh, you know, there's one. There was one nun who claimed that she she had a, a greed-type mind and, and was very agitated, and she claimed that she had she experienced nothing but sensual desire when every time she meditated for 25 years. And then um, you think, wow, that must be pretty hard <laughs> to just, when you're a nun and you can't act on any of that, right? Um, and then she had some tremendous opening and like went from 
greedy mind to Arahant. Uh, it had all been building up over that time. And suddenly things were very clear and she actually gained all of the psychic powers in addition, which are really just icing on the cake, they're not needed. Um, and quite a number of the monastics talk about a long, steady effort and then some some kind of fruit coming, but not in a way they expected. So that can be interesting to read about those other folks. It makes us, at least it makes me feel, first of all, connected to them, connected to a long lineage, and also, you know, patient and open, more open and soft about my own practice unfolding. Hmm. So maybe I'll Maybe those are, that's what I had to share on this topic, and I'll, I'll pause and ask if there are any questions or comments or wisdom to share from all of you. Yeah. Uh, I recently made a change, and uh, it's kind of related, but in my workouts, mm-hmm. I used to work out extremely intensely um, and dedicated to it. But then I started coming across readings, um, particularly in the hypnotherapy branch of Psychotherapy that actually um, it, sh- that it shouldn't be arduous. Your workouts shouldn't be arduous. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I occasionally will do hard workouts where I'll do repetitive, you know, Tabatas or something where it's repetitive and it's, it's difficult. But I was just wondering how you felt about this in light of the shift that I've had, you know, becoming aware that there is another way, just in like a less arduous yeah i think a lot of meditators go through that also um, if they start out very hardcore and you know sitting uh, with a lot of effort or sitting a lot um, there's often a point where people back off or have to back off either maybe their body tells them and somehow that backing off tends to open things up a little bit i think um I don't, you know, I won't try, I don't want to comment on the bodily part as much, but I think it's, it's, it is analogous in that there are periods where there might be a need for some intense effort or, you know, like going on a retreat can be, you know, you're sitting for eight hours a day or whatever it is, but, um, but there's no need to keep that up all the time or to feel like if I don't do this, I'm, I'm losing it or, or if I do it harder, it's going to be better. Um, I agree with the softer approach and not necessarily making a policy of, okay, I will never exert any effort in meditation because nothing should be challenging, but finding that balance. And that's just one more level of discernment is how much effort is needed at this moment, ranging from very strong effort to zero. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah. I just think I just... uh... It's something that I've been thinking about recently, and I thought I'd bring it up. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And there's a certain um, there's a certain letting go that has to happen to be able to change what you were doing before. So that's actually, the letting go is a good thing, the flexibility. I, I want to thank you for uh, bringing up the idea of faith. Mm. Um, 
it's something I've been thinking about just in terms of um, the role of faith, since that's not a term that is that certainly I have heard very much uh, as related to practice. Um, whereas you hear it a great deal in in other spiritual, certainly uh, areas. So, and that's actually been going through our minds. Like, what, what is what is the role of faith? Mm. Is there a role for faith in practice? So I just want to thank you for bringing that up. Okay. Yeah. Um, sometimes that's a word that has some charge for Westerners, and so I actually didn't like the word faith at all when I started practice. Um, and then I came to like it more, and so I do sprinkle it in. Do you think there's a role for faith? How do you see that right now? Oh yes, yeah. yes, there, there is, and it, it it sort of goes back to your first question about how would a student react to an instruction of 108 bounds. Right. It's you know, it's very simplest level. There's there's well, student says, of course, because they have faith that it there's some reason. Uh, and without questioning, or mm -hmm. perhaps they need the reason to support that trust. Right. Um, it totally depends on the person. It, it does, yeah. but uh, you know, in terms of, of practice, uh, especially for somebody new at practice, oh, you, you sit and and we all go through the frustrations of I, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know. There has to be that faith that there is something there mm -hmm. um, as as you start looking at um, uh, the, uh, the the noble truths and the eightfold path and the idea of of karma of of rebirth um, you know it's it's sort of assume that well you do this and this happens um, and perhaps uh, 2,600 years ago, it was much easier, but in today's society, yeah, perhaps, um, in today's society, it's perhaps more difficult because more and more we, we you know, we, we might as well be from Indiana, and we need to see the reason why. Mm. Um, so it, it's it's interesting to, it's reassuring that we can still say, you know, there is a role for, for faith that mm -hmm. however you define it yourself um, to, to do this practice, to hear the different teachings from different teachers and be able to accept, oh, well, okay, um, people have done it before me and, and it's, it's, maybe that's where the faith comes from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At the simplest level, there has to be some willingness. <laughs> and yeah, there's so many dimensions. You've named many different ways that one might approach that idea. And I think, you know, all of us can look internally and see for ourselves where we are on that. But yeah, there is certainly some role for... <laughs> you have to be willing at some level. Whatever you call it. Oh, thank you.
one of the things is, I've, I'm one of those people who's been doing some uh, same practices over quite a few years. One of the things I've discovered about that is that there are certain things that happen strictly through that repetition. It, it, I guess the closest analogy I have is in my music, when I'm using practicing music mm -hmm. and doing scales and doing those types of things. It's not necessarily interesting, but after a while of repeating that over and over, there'll come a point where there's, um, I guess in scientific terms, a neuroplastic change in which it's no longer a conscious effort, but it becomes a, a muscle memory. It becomes completely different than it was before. And the effort is no longer there. Right. And I find exactly the same thing has happened to me in repeating mm -hmm. breath meditation and other things. I come to a point where there's change that simply comes through that repetition. Yeah. Yep, beautifully said. And then there's space essentially for something else to start unfolding right. or to be able to observe at a deeper level because you don't have to put in the effort. And, yeah, nicely said. Yeah, in our culture, sometimes we don't get enough of that, and so we don't have the basis to believe that that can come about. Um, one of the things that I would say about repetition is um, interesting how the very first time someone approached the class and wanted us to do a chanting. And I was very resistant to want to do that verbally and repeat the same phrase over and over. And I, I just found that I was very resistant. However, what I found in my own personal practice is if I do choose to have a phrase that I want to really reinforce within my, my system my, as my practice, if I do it silently, mm -hmm. I can really see that that particular phrase keeps me on the path so beautifully when it comes to you know, the Eight Noble uh, Truths and you know, the Eightfold Path. That is one of the things that I will select and I will do that silently. Mm -hmm. And so it works for me that way. I still feel the same way about doing it out loud in a group with others. But if I do it for myself, then I find it really does work as far as making my whole system want to follow that idea, follow that thought. And it's, it's amazing how it's effortless after a while to not react and to have the skillful thought or the skillful speech or the skillful action. It's just after doing that as a mantra for a certain length of time, becomes a part of me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do appreciate that I, I was taught that chanting is something that's beneficial. It's just that I had to do it my own way. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great. Thank you. One more question. Um, oftentimes I've come across readings where it's like, yeah, you're doing this practice, but it's not for anything. It's not for yourself. It's not for, you know, um, it's not self-improvement, but it's more than that, really. It's like, it's almost as if there's some sense of guilt, or, or not really guilt, but feeling that you're not practicing 
sure practice if you are not if you are experiencing uh, more compassion or if you're you're able to be uh, happier in the world that these are things that are almost like like not beneficial to think about in your practice it seems from some readings yeah there's um I don't know exactly what you've read, but I've read things, some things um, that say things like no result, no aim, um, no goal, you know, there's, and that nothing should be expected from the practice. I think these teachings, which sound a little extreme, are, are kind of intended to, to be a, a counterbalance to the mind that's looking for results or that's looking for progress or that's looking for attainment, essentially, a thing that I can, a mantle, I can wear, a checkbox, I can say, I got it. And, you know, it's not that practice doesn't have results, Um, because that's why I think those statements sound a little extreme to me. It's just that when we identify with them, that then becomes a hindrance to us also. So uh, probably those, those kinds of statements need to be taken in context. Yeah, at least that's how I understand them. But I'm not a Zen teacher, so that's that's where I've heard them mostly. I think it might have been actually from a Christian writer. Oh, okay. I might have mentioned. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, there. Maybe it's meant for us to just keep checking why it is that we're practicing, and you know, if we're practicing for our own gain or if we're, um, you know, we it's a it's just a maybe a reminder that we need to keep checking our intention in order that we're not veering off into some of those other things I mentioned. Did the Buddha stop practicing after he attained enlightenment? He did not, actually. And he was, um, I mean, technically he wasn't practicing the path anymore because he didn't need to. <laughs> he was fully embodying the path. But um, somebody once asked him that, and he, it is recorded, at least in the, you know, in the documents, it's recorded that he went on retreat, for example, and he would still you know, meditate with the monks, and he apparently did breath meditation. It's one of his favorite kinds. And so somebody once asked him, you know, well, why do you still look like you're practicing? Are you done? Or maybe you're not really done. And um, he, didn't, he didn't take the bait on that, but he said, I do it for two reasons. One is for a pleasant abiding here and now, and the other is because I'm a model. I'm aware that I'm a model. Which I thought was, he actually said, he said, I'm, I do it out of compassion for other beings so that they might imitate what I do and therefore gain the same benefit. So I thought that was interesting, though. It wasn't only that he's doing it for others, but it's also, it's pleasant to practice. Why wouldn't it be if your mind is completely free? It's probably very pleasant to observe experience and, you know, just be with the unfolding. Um, yeah, so the Buddha kept practicing. So we really, we're really not ever done. <laughs> oh. Well, maybe with that, that's a good note for us to be temporarily done. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.